Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time I covered the Battle of Wittenweir in the worsening conditions of Brzezak after the defeat of the Imperials. Bernhard then delivered another assault defeat to the Catholics, and the separated armies of the HRE were unable to stop the siege from continuing, even though they outnumbered Bernhard's army as a whole. And for the garrison in the city, it just got worse and worse, the defenders being reduced down to 1,600 men, and as I'll cover in this episode, it's only going to get worse for them. But with that covered, let's get started. The garrison of Brizak soon fell around 400 men weeks after the last battle, starvation and disease creating desperation in the city. This, again, is going on since the last battle, so this is going to September, October, and November. So this is over time. They had run out of bread weeks before, being reduced to eating cow and horse hide, which can provide nutrients, but they don't generally taste very good. There's a reason why, in desperation, you can technically eat leather. Generally not recommended, though. The city managed to hold out until December 19th, when they agreed to surrender for free passage. This would avoid the mass pillaging and killing of the city the same way that a taking of the city physically would do. But Bernhard was angered when he learned 30 of his captured men had died during the siege, three of which had supposedly been eaten by the remaining men and women of the city. I'm about to cover the whole cannibalism thing historically and here, but it was unfair for Bernhard to expect that his prisoners would survive considering how bad it was and everyone else was starving. And this is before the Geneva Conventions, so the men of the garrison were more important than your prisoners with the only exception being high-ranking nobility and people you can ransom. You can't really ransom common soldiers the same way you can ransom the son of a duke or a lord or whatever. But on the cannibalism thing, the image of a city so desperate that they ate the dead or killed people for their meat was and is a very common story tossed around at this time. And even nowadays, it's usually a popular way to make a situation desperate or horrifying in a sense of once you hear about they were forced to resort to cannibalism, it's usually a, oh God, that's bad. Again, there are stories from these wars throughout Chinese history where cities were reduced to mass cannibalism and like a couple thousand people survived out of like, you know, 50,000. There's one particular example I can cannot remember, and I could not find, but it was rather infamous. I'm pretty sure it was during the Three Kingdoms period, or the Romance of Three Kingdoms, as some of you know better. I'm sorry I don't remember it, but I think the point is, the concept of this was not new. It's a very vivid image, and certainly is good for a story, as morbid as that sounds. And this, especially during the Thirty Years' War, which was rife with famine, disease, widespread warfare, would be common throughout the late 1620s, 1630s, though by the 1640s it had more or less become apocryphal or not really documented. But that goes to the fact that one of the issues with the whole concept of the whole cannibalism thing is, again, these are stories. There's not a lot of physical evidence to back up the fact that cannibalism was resorted to. I can certainly understand it happening, but the concept of a city going mass cannibalism is not necessarily one that you would see with most people, even at the most desperate. As long as there's something else to eat, they would do that instead. A lot of these accounts come from secondhand, which for those of you who aren't aware, secondhand is either you read a primary account or retelling it, or you heard about it from something else and are using that for information. So a secondary source in a book would be my primary book, which is a guy uses his primary sources to tell the story, but he's still writing them down for me to read and me to tell you guys, that sort of thing. 
the stories of the Thirty Years' War and the mass cannibalism and the like would reappear two centuries later during the 19th century, which fused with stories of colonialism and the desperation of cannibalism and survival as a gripping way to tell a story. Again, probably exaggerated, not that it never happened, but a whole city didn't go mass cannibalism. As the main book I just mentioned says, the concept of cannibalism in a siege was generally hearsay versus the facts where people eat dogs, cats, horses, rats, animals you wouldn't normally expect people to eat. Those are generally well attested. In fact, a common one is, there's no more rats in a city during a siege. That's how bad it got. These stories could be used for propaganda, or to garner sympathy, or even show the devastation of war, especially in a literary sense. Which wasn't uncommon, as this goes back to the ancient Greece and those sort of things. So, we're not in new territory here. But as much as I would love to talk about how history is defined by what we have, and a good, healthy concept is to question your sources, even if it's the only one you have, to see what biases it has, etc., etc., I need to move on to the actual plot of the war. Due to the rumors of cannibalism and his men allegedly being cannibalized, Bernhard humiliated the soldiers leaving the city, showing off using worse horse that he had captured during the Battle of Rheinfelden. You know, showing off his prizes and, and emphasizing the fact that they were beaten. He told the garrison commanders to not touch the archives of the city, as he wanted to make the city of his principality. He didn't tell them the second half, but he told them to leave the archives alone. He also wanted to garrison the city with his own men instead of the French, who had spent around one million talers to support this war, or at least this campaign. This campaign wasn't necessarily done, per se, but it was a good first step to the future of the war. Bernhard had closed the way into France, and could potentially be used to into Germany, but that would be a bit more complicated. However, because he won the battle and captured the city, he was known as the German Achilles for the success. This battle and siege also had political ramifications for the French, which were generally positive. While France would need more towns on the other side of the Black Forest to really launch attacks into Germany, they at least had their foot in the door here. They had a stable foothold. And the main benefit for them was the road into Alsace was blocked by this territory, which meant they could focus on holding it instead of not necessarily just being there. They could integrate the people, they could put in a civil administration, really make it part of France. And because there wasn't as much of a threat of mass attacks, the town could be less garrisoned and those troops could be used in other places. The fall of Brissac also started the downfall of Duke Charles, who had lost his last outpost at Than by early 1639, and fled with his mistress, along with 1,600 men, to Cirque on the Luxembourg frontier. The few remaining garrisons in Lorraine were also vulnerable, and French Comte was more open to attack as well. This also meant that Bernhard could be reinforced more easily, and they were closer to German territory when they wanted to launch into them. It also meant a safer retreat point as well. This campaign did a lot for the French, and this gave them a much better footing for future campaigns. The French and the Swedes were both in a better military position, and the Imperials were once again on the back foot, or at least more even, losing the advantage they had for the last couple of years after the defeat of the Swedes at Nordlingen. And as a direct result of the changing tides, Ferdinand began to really try to deal with the issues of amnesty. He devoted efforts to try to get the Gulefs and Hessen Castle to agree to the peace, and to push harder against the Swedes to try to get them to the negotiating table. He was tired of this war and wanted it to end, but like I said before, he needed to end with an advantage on his part to at least get better terms. But France and Sweden just put political pressure on the Germans they were allied to to keep their loyalty, or at least to say neutral at the very least. Although neutral, as I'll point out, was a bit annoying to them, although still better than siding with the Imperials. And unfortunately for Ferdinand, 
His father's decisions were coming back to haunt him right now. His father had promised to restore people's lands or give people certain territory due to the defeat of Sweden at Nordlingen and people trying to get more land or land back, that sort of thing. The big one here was Hildsheim was promised Cologne for their support at Regensburg, along with five other Württemberg districts being promised to other people. There were also people that were being excluded that were still creating an issue, and they can still undermine the peace because some people not being able to accept the peace or being able to accept the peace at all was a diplomatic nightmare for trying to create a German peace. And Duke August had petitioned the Emperor to return his capital of Wolfenbüttel, which will come up in a few minutes. So the Emperor had a lot of concerns, and he couldn't make anyone happy, as was normal in anyone in this position as the rule of an empire. But he tried his best, as he pardoned the only excluded Hohenlohe in 1637, said that the ruler of Württemberg was not responsible for local partisans I mentioned earlier, or I mentioned a couple of episodes ago. He was allowed back to his capital, although he had to give up his monasteries and already donated districts. Others were pardoned, and more arrangements were settled. Certain lands weren't given back, but those were easier conflicts, and those were the easier conflicts that I had to deal with. He had much more issue with the Wolfenbüttel, however, as it was a crux of dealing with Northwest Germany, as that was tied to the Gulefs. This area was going to be important for any operations or plans to try to get back that part of Germany. Brandenburg and Saxony invaded the land in 1637 to try to get the Gulefs to join them in the war, but Duke George got them to leave by convincing Sweden to evacuate Lundberg. However, this region wasn't resolved, and it would be frustrating to those who wanted to deal with the Gulefs, and that would make appealing to the Emperor hard, as he could say he could go back, but you would have to use military force to necessarily assert this power. But Duke George, back to his desire to create a more neutral stance between the two parties of the HRE and the Swedes in France, contacted Amelie Elizabeth to start negotiations after she renewed her truce with the Emperor in 1638. The negotiation between them could give them around 12,000 troops, and the new alliance appealed to the Hessians, who said it could be expanded to places like Cologne, Falls Newburg, or Hessen-Darmstadt. This new faction of Germans could be used to force the peace of Prague to be changed to make it more moderate, which Duke George was still focused on. And assisting this new faction was that the Danish were interested in protecting the interests of Lower Saxony post the tightening of Sweden and France's alliance in 1638. And remember, Lower Saxony was where Denmark wanted to put some of their people in. They had economic and political interests there, so there's a reason why they would want to play around here. Christian asked for Benair, the Swedish commander, to leave the Gulefs alone as he supported the faction for admittedly selfish desires, or nationalistic, what we would call it. The rise of this faction and demands for neutrality forced Ferdinand's hand, so he ordered Gallus not to collect Lower Saxon men, along with sending a negotiator to discuss this deal with a new faction. Christian also demanded the Imperials pull back their men from Wolfenbüttel, which they did, leaving only around 2,500 men at Wolfenbüttel, who, there were still Imperials, but there was less than before. The men were draining on the region, and cutting down trees people used for heating in the region and other essential goods. The Duke also considered it offensive to his dignity, and claimed they disrupted the good governance of the Duchy. How much of that is true, is up to the history books, and how, you know, they perceived it, but he at least claimed to have good governance. The Duke was then allowed back to his lands due to pressure from Denmark, but he was forced to keep the garrison, which seems to be a reasonable compromise, and the Emperor could not fully give in to any of the demands, as it was impossible for him to let go of the area, as it was still technically being held for Hildsheim, and to act as a security measure by Bavaria and Cologne. But unfortunately for easy politics, George was the only one dealing with slash clashing with Hildsheim, not August, 
So George was pushing his idea of neutrality. He even used the excuse for the request of taxes to gather the Lower Saxony Assembly, changing the topic to neutrality as a debate topic. This peeped out Ferdinand, who condemned this faction for building neutrality as contrary to the peace, ordering the Gulefs to join the army. But neutrality was actually welcomed by France, who wanted to create a new neutral bloc around Bavaria, as Bavaria broke their deal with France, although they were still somewhat friendly. It served their interests, and Maximilian invited Cologne, Mainz and Saxony in June 1638 for talks in Nuremberg, along with secret talks with France at Einsiedeln Monastery. Sweden feared this would give France an out or at least be able to disengage from the war, which would force Sweden to fight on their own again, which would not be to their benefit. A divided army was much easier to deal with compared to ever being focused on Sweden. So in response to this, Benair was ordered to march into Lundberg on January 1639, who, while being confined to a coach due to illness, was still able to command his army. The Gulas were able to provide them supplies but didn't have any troops which reinforced the idea of neutrality. Benair moved his troops to Lower Saxony by March, but by that point Saxony had officially declared neutrality, saying that they had to exclude Sweden from the area as it would break neutrality if they agreed to have their troops in there but not the Imperials. So Sweden would have to threaten this faction, which would lead to Benair's next actions, but I will leave this here, as next time we will have to deal with the short campaign of Benair's, along with competing for German supporters once again. I want to thank you all for listening, and social media links will be in the description box or in the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Mind that on Patreon. Thanks for those who support me. And to review and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time. <laughs> <laughs>